Rod FM News 101.
whether or not to part company with a clinic where she had worked for a long time and sign a non-disclosure agreement. For those of you who hate Donald Trump, non-disclosure agreements are a regular part of business in many, many industries. They don't just apply to Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels. They apply in a lot of other places, except in this case, a non-disclosure agreement says the doctor will keep her mouth shut, the medical institution will keep their collective mouths shut, and nobody is going to find out what actually happened. Or the doctor could decide to maintain her independence and her freedom to tell her patients why she was let go. And I would tell you that I think this is very significant to parents and the patients. And let me tell you what I know for sure. I know that Dr. Dana Kuzmala is a pediatrician in Lebanon, Oregon. I know that she has about 2,500 children as patients, and of course thousands of adults who go along with those children. And by all accounts, the parents of those children love her. I know that there have been rumors circulating about her, and none of the rumors, it turns out, are true. But what is true, I know the local newspaper voted Dr. Kuzmala the best pediatrician of 2021 and of 2023. And parents tell me they now understand that the reason that Dr. Kuzmala has been given effectively a pink slip. I know, you know, when you get to a certain level of income or status, doctors don't get pink slips. They part company with medical institutions or, you know, use whatever words you want. She basically got fired. And why? Well, all I can tell you is what I've been able to find out so far. And if I could, I prove it. No. But have I asked the people involved? Have I asked the doctor? Yes. She can't comment. Have I asked the medical institution? We have requested that Samaritan, the clinic where she worked, uh, we've asked that they come on and respond to these concerns. Why was this doctor, having committed no malpractice, having not been accused of anything out of line, why in the world would you show her the door and leave thousands of children and thousands of parents with no pediatrician to turn to? Well, what the parents tell me is that Dr. Kuzmala, again, I didn't get this from Dr. Kuzmala, she can't talk, uh, disagrees with Samaritan's view of gender dysphoria. You know, the stuff all the woke types call trans, where a lot of doctors in America now make major moolah doing chemical castration of kids. Now, I've been waiting for some doctors to stand up and say, this is wrong, I won't do it. Except I want you to understand, if you're a parent or a grandparent, don't expect that to happen anytime soon. There are too many people who understand if you're in the medical field and you stand up and object, you're going to be shown the door. And then you're going to find out that every medical institution where you might actually be able to find a job to replace the one you just lost, say, we don't want you here. You don't believe in the stuff that's making us a lot of money. You don't believe in the woke stuff. You must be, and here's the key word that they've labeled Dr. Kuzmala with, according to the parents who are the parents of the patients that Dr. Kuzmala took care of, transphobia. I mean, this is the red letter these days. If you are labeled transphobic as though anybody is fearful of somebody who is confused about their gender, I want you to think about the implications of knowing that if your doctor gets fired for refusing to do things to your kids that she or he think are wrong and evil, that the medical institutions may insist that that doctor stay silent and they'll use the power of money to be able to keep that doctor 
and the doctor's colleagues silent. And if you're one of the doctor's colleagues who agrees that making permanent sexual changes to children so young, they're not allowed to make any kind of adult decisions at all in any other way except gender dysphoria. Can they even open their mouths to speak out against it? Well, not if they depend on a paycheck. Not if they depend on being able to have a job anywhere in any region in any part of America. Because once you get labeled as transphobic, do you think that most of those medical institutions that are making literally billions of dollars on chemically castrating kids, do you think they're going to touch that doctor or nurse with a 10-foot pole? Of course they're not. And in some ways, this mirrors what happened during the arguments over the mRNA jab. If anybody has more information, I'd be glad to take it. I'll talk to Samaritan. If they want to talk, I'll talk to the doctor when she wants to talk. But in the meantime, meantime, this is just flat dead wrong. 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Attention, landlords. Wise words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, your body well right, you know he got a right to sit. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. Oregon certainly gets some strange messages from its elected leadership. Not that Washington State and Idaho don't as well. But I wanted to talk about Oregon in particular here. Take the news this week that Governor Tina Kotek plans to forgive 10,000 more drivers who've had their driver's licenses suspended. That's on top of thousands who've already had that kind of forgiveness. These folks lost their licenses for a perfectly obvious reason, because they broke the law with offenses like speeding. No crimes, but things like speeding. Then they failed to pay their ticket. I'm sure that all of you have paid tickets. I've paid tickets as well. It's part of owning a car. Follow the rules. If you break the rules, you get a ticket. If you get a ticket, pay the ticket. If you don't pay the ticket, you may actually lose your license. Well, eventually the failure did cause these thousands of drivers to lose their license. And now the governor says, no worry, no harm, no foul. You get your license back without paying a dime. Now, remember, this is the same government that is constantly claiming that it's short of cash. ODOT just begged for $19 million, saying we've only getting $3 billion a year, only getting $8.3 million a day in our budget. We can't afford to plow snow in a state where plowing snow has been a regular part of doing business as a highway department for literally decades. Yet most of us see evidence every single day that the rules do not apply to some. 
Unlicensed cars on the streets with tags expired for years, probably not registered, probably not insured. Many of the people who get this unearned forgiveness didn't even bother to reinstate their licenses when the governor decided to forgive them. And why should they? Traffic enforcement has dropped dramatically. The law now forbids police from stopping you for anything short of probable cause that you've actually committed a crime. Meantime, speeding takes lots of lives every year and leaves many others horribly injured. And the message from a governor elected on illegal campaign contributions funded by cyber criminals at FTX, well, don't worry about the rules. It's really not a big deal. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Find out right now. I'm going to give today's daily grill for the reasons I stated a few minutes ago to Samaritan Health Services of Lebanon for their clinic, for parting company with pediatrician Dr. Dana Kazmala for reasons the doctor cannot talk about and reasons that Samaritan won't talk about. I think parents in that community and their kids deserve some kind of answer. So far, we're not getting it. Today's best email, but you can always send more. This one comes from Paul Vasquez, who is an emailer who heard me talking about Joe Biden trying to persuade Americans that Bidenomics, you know, the current economic situation we're in, is actually working out well for Americans. Paul wrote, Hey, Lars, my wife and I don't make a ton of money, slightly below the median right now, as I was forced to retire due to COVID. Three years ago, because of COVID, I spent a month tracking our grocery and dining out expenses, $450 a month. Three years later, I replicated that, and our monthly outlay for groceries and dining out is $800 a month. Both food and restaurant prices have skyrocketed. I read an article a few months back that said Oregon wages have actually slipped backward. They have not advanced. Today, I know people, including me, that have had to make active choices, chicken over beef or pork, wait until bacon goes on sale, same for hamburger. We eat less expensive tilapia and chicken now because of the high cost of beef and pork. There are thousands of people like me that have had to reduce their standard of living. Keep fighting, Lars. Voices are important, signed Paul Vasquez. To your calls, and glad to have you with me on a Wednesday. If you want to dial into the best conversation and talk journalism, it happens right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. Today's question right out of the news of the day. Should people who sell deadly illegal drugs that kill their customers face homicide charges? I would answer yes. Uh, a man in Portland is now facing not local charges, and that's significant. The local authorities chose not to charge him. Instead, he faces federal charges for distributing counterfeit oxycodone containing fentanyl that caused the overdose death of a Portland teenager. And really take it to heart. This is a crime that could have been charged locally. It was not. It was charged instead federally. That tells you something. When the federal government is willing to prosecute and local prosecutors will not, you've got a problem. And in this case, his name is Mike Schmidt. So today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let me go first to Ron in Tacoma, listening on the Radio Northwest Network and Talk Radio 570 KBI. Hey, Ron, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Uh, a couple things, Lars. Uh, it appears that the Republican Party has decided to run independently 
of the Republican Party. Uh, <laughs> it's very puzzling to me, but, uh, I, you know, I don't understand the point of this. If they're not going to fix the election problem, we're just counting bad votes again. And I don't know if you know about this. I found this very surprising. Back in May 10th uh, this year, CNN Business reported that voting technology company Smartmatic competed Trump campaign as part of a $2.7 billion lawsuit against Fox News. Yep. But, I know about but it. We've enough, talked about it. Yeah, by ironically enough, in September uh, 22nd, they posted two other uh, articles reference this matter. You'll notice that it says Smartmatic implicated in alleged bribery scheme involving top Filipino election Okay, officials. but Ron, Ron, i got to tell you something. First of all, when I state... I, you know, like the, the first segment I did today, I said, there are things I know for sure that I can document and things I can't. And you're not citing the sources on any of this. I'm well aware that there are arguments over the role of Smartmatic in the 2020 election and in future elections. A lot of us have concerns about electronic vote counting uh, done by computers. In fact, before the 2020 election, there were three top Democrats, including Ron Wyden, the guy who claims to represent Oregon but lives 3,000 miles away. He and two fellow Democrats signed a letter saying we're concerned about the influence of these companies that own the voting machine software and hardware. All of a sudden, when 2020 happened, the Democrats said, no, we're no longer concerned. But what's your bottom line? What, what's the question you've got? When you say the Republican Party hasn't fixed it, do you know who, who writes the laws for every state about how their election is held? Well, yeah, each state does their own. Yes, right? so, each state. Does, so it has to be done state by state. Georgia has made changes to its election law. Half a dozen other states have made changes to their election laws. And that really is the job of the states. If they saw problems in the 2020 election, and Georgia and other states did, then they say, let's change the laws. And in many cases, they have. Now, have they made it a perfect system? Not by a long shot, but they have made some changes. So when you say it's up to the party to change the laws, the Republican Party is not a legislature, nor are they the Congress. The Republican Party can encourage people, and I'm not defending the Republican Party. I, I have my own differences with the Republican Party. we got to fix this thing in every single state in America. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Just listen for five minutes. You'll feel better. More with Lars Larson right now. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. A little update from some national news. There are reports of a, a shooting incident going on at the UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, police on the scene say there are reports of multiple victims at the time. We'll get you details as there are more details available. In the meantime, I want to talk to my friend Nigel Jaquist. I don't have a lot of friends who are Pulitzer Prize winners, but he's one of them. He's at Willamette Week, and you can find his stories at wweek.com. And he's been dogging down a story for a long time that involves one of the richest people in the Pacific Northwest. His name is Robert Pamplin, Jr. Uh, and some of the uh, apparent financial misdeeds that Mr. Pamplin and his companies have been involved in. Nigel, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Lars. 
You called him one of Oregon's most storied business leaders. He invited, a, he, in, he inherited a pile of money from his dad, and he's been involved in a lot of things, Christian supply stores, radio. He did, he's no longer in radio. He's still in publishing, but he's been doing something with a pension plan that thousands of his em, former employees depend on, and probably of hundreds of them will depend on, and he's been doing things that are actually completely illegal. Have I overstated that case? No, I think that's accurate. Over the past uh, three or four years, he has systematically looted uh, the uh, pension uh, pension fund, which is held not for his benefit, but for the benefit of the retirees you've mentioned. What what he's done is, as the Pamplin Industrial Empire has struggled, that's Ross Island, sand and gravel, a bunch of textile mills down in the south, uh, farm and ranch land in Oregon, he has uh, systematically sold real estate to the pension fund. So he takes cash out of the pension fund and he puts real estate that could charitably be described as junk uh, uh, into the pension fund. So, for instance, there's a piece of land right at the uh, on the east bank of the Willamette River in Portland, right where the Springwater Quarter Trail starts. It's an unused concrete plant, hasn't been used for at least five years. He sold that to the pension fund in 2019 for $4.8 million dollars. Uh, uh, it's been for sale ever since. Nobody would pay half that amount for it. Um, and he's done that over and over and over again, more than $60 million of real estate into the pension fund, most of it uh, illiquid, unusable, and taken cash out of the pension fund. So he is using that pension fund as a piggy bank to prop up his failing businesses. Now, he could, I suppose you could say, well, if somebody gets into financial trouble and the revenue isn't coming in, and that's happened to plenty of businesses, then you sell assets, but you sell them on the open market. But if he had to do that, he wouldn't be able to name the price. Is it legal for Robert Pamplin, who manages his company's pension fund, and that's another questionable activity, but is it legal for him to decide what the value of the asset is that he's selling to his pension plan? No, uh, he he would have to go to the uh, Department of Labor, which regulates pensions, and say, I want to sell this land to a related pension fund. Would you approve that? Uh, in each case, he would have to ask for approval. He's done it more than 70 times. He has never asked for approval. By the way, it would be unlikely that they would grant approval because most of this land, again, is industrial land that is uh, not particularly marketable, would be hard to sell. So the Department of Labor doesn't like pension funds to hold real estate uh, generally. They would say no more than 10% ever. He's got 52% of his pension fund, so five times the maximum in real estate. But the only kind of real estate that they allow pensions to hold is uh, real estate that is marketable, that has more than one use, and that was bought from uh, an outside party in an arm's-length transaction. So nothing about these transactions uh, complies with Department of Labor laws. And, and it's not impossible to do that. If a pension fund said somebody's offered to sell us 100 houses, if we buy the houses, we can we can rent them, we can sell them, they can be used as you know different things, and and that would that would qualify all those things. And yet, let me point something out. I didn't see it in your story, but maybe I missed it. Um, Val Hoyle, who's now a member of Congress, and uh, and did I think questionable and even illegal things as as be as a Boley commissioner, she would have been the person overseeing all this. 
No, no, Federal oh. Department of Labor. Federal oh, Federal Department. Department. Oh, so, not, not, not so the state doesn't get involved in regulating all this stuff at all? State state has no role here. It's only the feds. And, uh, you know, look, I've been in contact with the Department of Labor, their regional offices in San Francisco. Uh, they have told me what I just told you, which is none of these transactions comply with the law. Um, you know, the question that I've been asking them, and I think I would encourage all your listeners to ask, is why aren't they enforcing the law? And and, and would there be a good reason not to enforce the law? None that they have shared with me, none that any of the lawyers and accountants I've asked to look at these transactions can think of. They're all scratching their heads. They, they haven't seen anything like this. Again, it's been going on since 2019. It started with a little bit, uh, and now it's a lot. It's like a, it's like a tsunami of uh, impermissible, risky, bad deals for pensioners putting cash into Pamplin's pocket. I've I've met Bob uh, Bob Pamplin a couple of times uh, over the, over the years, but I don't know him well. But I don't think he's a lawyer. All of these things would have taken a lawyer to involve these transactions. Is it possible that his lawyers are not aware of what the laws are about what pensions are and are not lo- allowed to do? He has to file every year with the feds a tax return that's about fifty or sixty pages long that has to include. A sign-off from an accounting firm. It has to include include a sign-off from an actuarial firm. Uh, Pamplin's a very sophisticated guy. He has, in the past, employed the biggest law firms in the Northwest in his various businesses. So, it's impossible for me to believe that people who work for him and who advise him don't know what he's doing. It's all disclosed. I mean, he's not hiding it. He, he is looting this pension fund right out in the open. Okay, and the the ultimate consequence, remind me, how many people currently depend on pensions out of that pension fund? About uh, exactly 2,117, according to his most recent filing. And then are there other people who are still perhaps working for Pamplin who are earning pensions? That includes about about 270 current workers. The rest of them are retirees. And, again, I mean, not to get too much into the weeds, a lot of these people worked, uh, you know, 30, 40 years doing very difficult uh, manual labor and textile mills in the south where they were probably breathing things they shouldn't have been breathing and doing backbreaking work with the hope, uh, with the assurance that they were going to get a pension someday. And the way he is treating this uh, pension fund uh, cast a lot of doubt on whether that money's going to be there when they need it. Are, are those parties or people representing them, are they aware of what's being done to the pension fund? They have no, uh, I've talked to a few pensioners. They have really very little visibility um, into the pension fund, even though it's a public record. You'd have to know where to look for and you'd have to be able to understand it. No offense to the pensioners. I don't think that's their responsibility. No, they have no idea. They, they have no idea what's being done to them except to the extent that they're reading my articles. Okay, is the Department of Labor ever going to move on this? Do you get the sense? I sure as hell, I sure as hell hope they are, Lars. I really do. I, I can't understand why they haven't, and neither can the lawyers. I've talked to lawyers who have dealt with the Department of Labor who, who have assured me this is absolutely wrong, and they are puzzled as to why the Department of Labor is not moving. So I don't. And I, by the they way, won't tell me. Pamplin hasn't talked to you, right? They stopped talking to me 
I've written probably five pieces about this issue, uh, each one a little worse than the previous. They stopped talking to me after about the first three, and the Department of Labor has stopped talking to me as well. Yeah, because they don't want to explain why they've allowed all this to happen, and yet some of those pensioners could end up without a check in retirement. That's Nigel Jaquist. You can find this story. It's fascinating. We've reached out to Dr. Pamplin in the past. He's been unwilling to comment. Uh, we'll reach out to him again and offer him another opportunity. I'll get to your phone calls and your emails in just a moment. It's a Wednesday, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You don't have to. Bringing the political heat. He's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to get your calls. I want to tell you one quick story, a little update on something, and then I want to go to your calls. But if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our Twitter poll. You're going to find that poll every single day at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter if you will, if you like, or on our website at LarsLarson.com. Should people who sell deadly illegal drugs that kill customers face homicide charges? The specific story involves a man in Portland who's now facing federal charges. He distributed counterfeit oxycodone pills that actually had fentanyl in them. And that caused the overdose of a Portland teenager. Nasir Overton has been charged by criminal complaint with one count of conspiring to distribute and possess with intent to distribute fentanyl, resulting in death and distributing and possessing with intent to distribute fentanyl. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, a 15-year-old overdosed on fentanyl. The detective learned that the previous day, the teenager overdosed after ingesting a single counterfeit oxy pill containing fentanyl. He was pronounced dead four days later. An investigation into the case found the teen got the lethal pill from a friend who bought two pills from Overton. The friend went by the alias Nani. So if you sell the illegal drugs and the illegal drugs end up killing somebody, should you face a homicide charge or manslaughter charge? I would say yes to that. You can vote any way you like. Today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, let's go first to uh, Bob. Hey, Bob, thanks for listening. What's on your mind? How you doing, Lars? Quite well, sir. Good. Okay. All I wanted to do is bring up to you and your listeners that all this crap that's going on with uh, Hamas in this country being yeah. supporting people. Yep. I want everybody to remember and send a email to the White House and remind them that there are no rules in love or war. <laughs> okay. Was that the point you wanted to make? Well, that, and I got one more little thing. Okay. Uh, there's, a, there's a new company up in Seattle that's got the fusion reactor on the road almost. They uh, are promising okay. that it's going to be ready by the end of 2024. We'll see. I, I, I think that's hogwash, Bob. 
Can I tell you why? Go ahead. Well, when I was in high school, which is about half a century ago, fusion power for commercial generation of electricity was supposed to be right around the corner. And if you look up anything on the latest, and there have been some big developments in fusion in the last year or two, they're still saying it's right around the corner. And the big development within the last two or three years, um, <clears throat> I can't remember the exact date of it, but they, they, they've always been able to get material to fuse, you know, to start that fusion reaction. What you can't get is an ongoing fusion reaction that puts out more energy than it takes to make the reaction. Does that make sense? That sound yeah, like it, it makes does. sense. Okay. I so so I, within the last two years, I believe they actually created one reaction. It was a, they take a little pinpoint of matter, they focus lasers on it, they hit it with enough energy, and they cause fusion to happen for like one one millionth of a second. And they, yeah. I think they achieved the goal that they got the reaction to produce more energy than it consumed to make it. Okay, and, and and so they said that's a huge development, and I, I think scientifically it is. Now, getting it from that point to a reactor somewhere that could be set up that would generate steam, turn turbines, generate electric power, you're talking about th when they get to an ongoing fusion reaction that produces more energy than it consumes, you're still talking about decades before you could actually build a plant. So the likelihood that anybody could create a fusion reactor that's going to work uh, between now and, say, the end of, of uh, 2025, uh, I, unless, and I'm happy to be proved long, wrong if somebody actually, you know, can, can show me where have they come up with something that is not still on the, uh, in, the, in the lab, you know, on, you know, because you can do a lot of things in a scientific lab. You can make reactions happen, and then you say, now, once we get this to commercial scale, which might be decades later. And as I told you, half a century ago, fusion power was supposed to be right around the corner. They still call it right around the corner. So I, I think it's a long, long corner. Let's go to Pinball. Hey, Pinball, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Uh, good afternoon, Lars. Um, I'm going to be a happening say with you today. If you are a drug dealer, yeah. back when I was a meth monkey, as an adult, I know what I'm doing. I go to my dealer. I get it. I die. So what? But if you are an adult and you sell to a minor, then yes. Well, what if, what if, man, what if, hold I, on, but Pinball, what if you are selling something as oxycodone and your sales pitch is a lie? It's not oxy, it's fentanyl. And that ends up killing somebody. Are you responsible for having, number one, sold something that's illegal under federal law, and number two, you sold it as oxy, and it was, in fact, fentanyl, whole different animal? Yes. For instance, I was a meth monkey, okay? Now, if I went to my dealer and I, yeah, man, I got some good meth here, and he gives it to me, and it turns out to be heroin, then yes. And I died, then yes, he should be charged. It's like you can't sell a lemon. You can't sell a... No, you can't sell a car that's not going to run. E even if it's an illegal lemon, I agree with you. He should be charged with a crime. Pinball, thanks for the call. You've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. You ready for the big solo? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved, the 
Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live and now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. And I'd be especially glad if we had more people in state government, in this case, in the Pacific Northwest, who are calling out the lie that is Jay Inslee's carbon plan. Because his carbon plan, where carbon credits are auctioned off, uh, money flows into the state of Washington. The price of gasoline goes up dramatically, 50, 60 cents a gallon. And then when you ask Jay Inslee, why are you driving the cost of gas higher? He says, it's not my carbon tax. It's those evil, greedy fossil fuel companies that are simply gouging the customers. I thought we'd talk about this because there was finally one person who's actually called out the government. Scott Smith of Tumwater was a transportation planner at the Washington State Department of Transportation. And what he was supposed to do was keep an eye on revenue coming in from gas taxes and fees. And then he was effectively asked, will you lie to the public and tell them the price of gas is not going up because of this carbon tax? And he said he wouldn't do it. He said he was under that pressure. Uh, he was retaliated against. And he said, so they eliminated my job. I didn't want to quit. I'm an economist. Uh, I, that's not the way I think. I've been damaged. I've got nowhere else to go. They've left me no choice but to take legal action. Senator Perry Dozer, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks, Lars. I appreciate the opportunity to get to visit with you on this. I'm also uh, an economist. It was my degree, so I can understand what he looks at. Is there a chance that Scott Smith coming forward and actually calling out WashDOT as having lied to the public? In, in effect, they may they may use more uh, you know polite terminology than I do, but they're lying to the public. Is this going to break loose the dam and finally get Inslee and and the government held accountable for what they've done with this carbon tax? Well, I think it really shows what was actually discussed years ago, or not years ago, but when this uh, bill was first passed that it would have an effect on it. I mean, we saw that coming out of the Washington Policy Center. It was brought forward by our Senate uh, Republican um, uh, contingent, and we knew that this was going to be a driving force to bring up prices of fuel. And, of course, uh, in, Governor Inslee comes out and says, no, 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 maybe just pennies or even go down. But uh, it was a clear sign after uh, January 1st when this was fully adopted We've seen what it does, and it is, it's devastating for us here, everybody in Washington State. What do you think is the honest number that that tax has driven up gasoline prices by? Because I've said it's anywhere from 45 to 60 cents a gallon, but do you have a better number than that? Yeah, I think it's way more than that. Um, it depends on, so if I go, I'm in a border county um, bordering Oregon, and I can go down there and say probably a dollar twenty a gallon. I was over in Idaho yesterday, and from where I'm at locally here in Walla Walla yeah. County, right. um, save about twenty. I can go to Idaho, and it was probably a buck forty less. Based on when I was in Olympia last week and saw what the cost was there versus what I could have gotten in Oregon or Idaho, we're approaching anywhere from a buck seventy to almost two dollars. 
See, and I had the same experience this summer. We took my granddaughter up to uh, Silverwood to the you know the park up by Coeur d'Alene. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I stopped and I gassed up before I left. I think I gassed up in Post Falls and and then drove yeah. across the border into Spokane because she loves staying at the uh, at the Davenport, that old hotel. Uh, my little yeah. granddaughter does. And I drove past the gas station. And I said, "Thank God I gassed up in Idaho. This place is nuts." Absolutely. Uh, yesterday um, um, in Idaho, when I went through just south of there, uh, $3.60 diesel there. And in Olympia, when I was over there last week, it was uh, $5.59. Ouch. So if we get it called out, is there any chance of persuading you know, people like J- Governor Inslee to say this is this has gone too far. It has too much of a, a negative effect on citizens. Or are they so tied into this thing that they're never going to give it up unless the voters decide to rescind it? Well, I think what we're going to look at here, obviously, is um, the intent of the bill. Obviously, was to reduce carbon emissions, but we know that there would be some type of a fallout on that. And, you know, it's not only just the cost of the fuel that we put in our cars. It translates down to everything else that we buy because everything is hauled, whether it's your Amazon package that comes, whether it's my fuel that gets or my uh, crops that get um, uh, go down the river in, in, uh, on barges. We're paying more and more in Washington State across the board for everything that we do, and it's not just the gas that we put in our car. So this has got a huge effect on the the pocketbooks of all of us in Washington State other than just putting fuel in your car. But are your Democrat colleagues willing to even talk about this? Because if you go to them and say, what was this intended to do? And if the answer is, as you just gave us, it's to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide going into the air. Okay, has it done that? I mean, what was it, close to $2 billion has come in from this already? Yeah, I think there was actually, I, I believe today is another option, and we really won't know um, the results of it. But this is something that I had also sent out a letter September 26th, the Department of Ecology director, asking for more transparency in how this auction works. And uh, it took two weeks to get a response back. And basically, it, it's hiding some of the information that I think needs to be out there for transparency. And this was one of the things that we had asked for was that we had transparency in this bill, and it was a amendment that was brought forth by um, Senator Jeff Wilson um, and then actually um, supported by the prime sponsor of the bill that we have transparency and we don't have transparency. And so when you look into why are we paying $63 uh, or $66 um, for carbon credits when you've got California – that's paying 30-some dollars. So obviously it's going to drive up those costs that are associated with that gets passed down. But, Senator Dozier, has it cut the output of carbon dioxide in Washington? It hasn't, has it? No. No, of course it hasn't, because the only way you're going to cut the carbon uh, uh, dioxide output is by investing into your businesses to be able to find cleaner ways to, uh, for the production of whatever you're producing to reduce those. 
And except how do you how do you do that when they said you can't use nuclear, you can't use nat gas, you can't use all these other things? What's the cleaner way to go? I I don't know. I mean, this is just really a attack on fossil fuels, is what it is. Yeah, well, with, with the side benefit that Jay Inslee gets to enrich, artificially and illegitimately enrich his government at, to no benefit for the citizens. Senator Doja, keep up the fight. We want to see the voters get a hold of this at some point. I think they'll shoot it down. That's Senator Perry Dozier from District 16. That's Columbia and Walla Walla counties. And by the way, we'd invite any Democrat from the Washington legislature once to come on and talk about this and defend the crazy carbon tax. In a moment, let's talk about Donald Trump, who the news media is trying to tell you he's saying that he's going to become a dictator. We'll address that head-on coming up next. I'll get to your phone calls and emails after that at 866-439-5277. The groundbreak. He has small town politics with big town opinions. This is the Lars Larson Show. He says, you're not going to be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border and we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. Now, I want to warn you about something that's coming right at you right now. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Yep, that's right. They're saying we can't stop Trump any other way. So what we have to do is persuade Americans he's going to be a crazy, insane dictator. Why, he says it with his own mouth. Actually, I'm going to let you listen to the whole soundbite so you can decide for yourself. But my conclusion is Donald Trump only says on day one, I'm going to close the border, and I'm going to start doing everything we can to drill, drill, drill. Natural gas, oil, uranium, if we still have any that hasn't been sold to the Russians or others by the Democrats. Yes, he's planning to be a dictator about closing the border and drilling for oil. And I know that I I suspect, I mean, I've only met Donald Trump on a few occasions. He's been on the show. You've heard him here. But I suspect that Donald Trump, knows exactly how to tweak the mainstream media and his political opponents and the rhinos on the Republican side of the aisle. He knows exactly how to get their goat, and then he gets them going. And all they do is talk about Donald Trump more. And God bless him, that's why he's going to win, and that's why Joe Biden is going to lose, assuming that he actually makes it to the finish line this coming November. In any case, glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, I'm going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to me. The address is easy, talk at LarsLarson.com. And you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that two places. One is on X or Twitter, at Lars Larson Show, and on our website at LarsLarson.com. In a moment, I'll play that whole soundbite for you, but... I want to outline the situation that's coming at us right now because I've never seen anything like it in politics before. And here's how it works. You've got two candidates 
who are going to run for president of the United States next year. Theoretically, Joe Biden will make it to the actual November election. Theoretically, his party will give him the nomination because they don't have too many options otherwise. Kamala Harris is not an option. Gavin Newsom is not an option. And yet Joe himself, most of his own party does not want him to run for re-election. And in fact, just this week, Joe Biden stood in front of a group of political at a, a fundraiser who's raising money uh, for his effort. And he said to them, I probably wouldn't even be running, but Trump is running. So I have to run, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Why do you have to run for president because Donald Trump is running? I'll get to that because here's the logic they're going to try and use. But here's what all these forces are up against. And let me tell you who's on one side. On one side, you've got Joe Biden, the Democrat Party, almost all of the mainstream legacy media. They all hate Donald Trump with a passion. Now, they want to make you fearful of Donald Trump. And I'll point out to you, they tried to do this in 2015 and 2016. Do you remember all the predictions that were made? And as we head up to this election, I'm going to put them together in an audio reel uh, where we can play it for you. But I'll remind you, there were people saying if Donald Trump becomes president, Wall Street is going to collapse. It didn't. It prospered. They, they said the economy will fall into the ditch. It didn't. It prospered. Why, he's a racist and he's an anti-Semite. People of color and people of different faiths, they'll be very much his victims. Well. No, as a matter of fact, no. Oh, he, he hates homosexuals. No, don't think that's true either. And I didn't think there was reason to believe it when they said it. They said all these things, and they made all these predictions. Donald Trump will get us into more wars. Why, he's got his finger on the nuclear button. Can you imagine how scary that is? No, you know what's scary? Joe Biden, anywhere near the nuclear button. Joe Biden, who came into office with a stable situation in Afghanistan, 2,500 troops there, not a single casualty, not even anybody wounded in 18 months. What's, what happens six months later? 13 service members dead, a colossal disastrous exit from Afghanistan, billions of dollars of weapons thrown into the hands of terrorists, thousands of Americans left behind Taliban lines, and people clinging to the outside of airplanes as the airplanes took off only to land in friendly countries where we found out that there were people on those airplanes who weren't supposed to be there. They were on the terrorist watch list. I mean, that was a disaster. And then Joe Biden inviting a, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, saying, well, if it's a small invasion, uh, we might have to take some actions. He invited Putin to do it. And then he, well, then he went out and blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I hope people don't forget about that. And now, all of a sudden, we've got a war going on between Hamas and Israel. And how did that get started? Well, Joe Biden gave the mad mullahs of Tehran $6 billion, and they gave some of it to Hamas. And Hamas went out and slaughtered and raped and beheaded and burned people to death. Yeah, that kind of thing. And do we have the potential of a war uh, between China and the United States over Taiwan because of Joe Biden? Yes. And would many of those things have happened if Donald Trump had been in office, if the Democrats hadn't cheated in the 2020 election? So with all that as background, the Democrats are facing this and the media and the Republican rhinos on the Republican side of the aisle. They can't stand the idea that Donald Trump 
is virtually inevitable. And yet, as of this week, most of the media, most of the political movers and shakers have admitted that Donald Trump is all but inevitable. He's going to get the nomination. And at this point, the polls, the average of all the polls by real clear polling uh, shows about a two or three point lead for Donald Trump, despite all the bashing, despite all the indictments and everything else. So what are they left with as an option for a strategy? Well, they say we've got to convince people that he's a crazy minded dictator. Let me let me give you a sampling of that. And then I'll play that soundbite from Trump again. Uh, we've got the Associated Press. Trump won't rule out abusing power for retribution. Or how about this one from CNN? Just a couple of days or one day ago, a second Trump turn term poses a threat to the existence of America as we know it. And then you've got the Atlantic. If Trump wins, the staff of the Atlantic on the threat a second term poses to American democracy. And, of course, the New York Times has got to weigh in why a second Trump presidency may be more radical than his first. And the Washington Post, a Trump dictatorship is increasingly inevitable. We should stop pretending. And then you get this statement in which Donald Trump, talking to one of my fellow talk show hosts, a friend, uh, Sean Hannity, says the following. Take a listen. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Yeah. Except for? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. That's drill, not a that's, drill. That's not, oh, no. that's not retribution. No, it's not retribution at all. That's not getting even. That's saying, do we need to close America's southern border? I think, I think even Democrats agree we can't take the continued invasion of America that Joe Biden has created. Even the Democrats who run places like Chicago and New York and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., have said, we're being invaded. We've got too many illegals because they thought they'd all stay in the southern states, the, the red states of America. So what they've got to do is try to convince you. Donald Trump will be a dictator. Donald Trump will do things that put in democracy in danger. You mean the kind of democracy that Joe Biden and his friends practice? The kind where Barack Hussein Obama gets rich, Hillary and Bill Clinton get rich, the Biden crime family gets rich, they peddle influence, they sell on America's future, and they're afraid of the guy who made America great again? In fact, Joe Biden uses it as some kind of slur. Why, these are MAGA types. You mean the people who believe in making America great again? They've got to convince you that somehow Donald Trump is the boogeyman. Well, it is for them. You're listening to the Lars, Lars Larson Show. Unwrapping the news so you don't have to. Back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll be glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. You know, when most of us hear the phrase executive order, especially in terms of the president of the United States, I, I guess I'd have to confess that I've always imagined, say, a single sheet of paper saying, you know, make it this way and, yeah. and a signature down below it. But in, in this case, we want to talk about an executive order that is 13 separate sections extending out over 100 pages. And the man, the perfect man to talk about it, is Will Reinhardt, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity. Hey, Will, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is, this is, a, this is a big one. This is it, a very it's, long. Are, are they usually this long, 100 pages uh, long, with 100 what they call deliverables, which I, I would call promises from every major yeah. agency of the federal government? 
This is one of the largest executive orders I've ever seen. And, you know, I'm, I, I have the fun job of actually reading through a lot of these uh, day in and day out. So, yeah, no, this is probably the largest I've ever seen. It is a, a dramatic change in policy for the administration and for the, for the Biden administration. And there, there's a lot to think here. So it, it, it's going to take a, quite some time to kind of have everything settle out. But, uh, you know, my expectation is that this executive order is going to be pretty – we're going to look back and say that it was a very impactful and meaningful executive order. Yeah, and maybe not necessarily in a good way. So for any big executive order, it deserves a big title. The Executive Order on the Safe, Secure, and Trustworthy Development and Use of Artificial Intelligence. Can you give us some of the high points of this, since I don't think we have nearly enough time to cover all 100 pages or all the 100 deliverables in this thing? Yeah, so so there's there is a lot. I mean, it, to be honest, there is you know as you as you noted, it, it hits almost every single major agency. Um, it really directs a lot of agencies to kind of get their house orders. So one of the things that I think it's going to end up doing is that it's really going to say to government agencies, yes, these tools, these AI tools like ChatGPT and the new Google, um, the new Google Bard. Those are, are useful, and you can actually use these, and you should use these in your workflow and, and figure out how to implement these things to have better service and better delivery. Currently, most of the government agencies basically have said, no, we're not going to deal with this. We're not going to integrate these services in our, you know, into our workflows. And, and I think that at least in that part, it's, it's going to be good because it's going uh, to give a lot of emphasis on these sorts of tools to make things better. But the other part of this, which is, I think, the, the sneaky part of this, is that the agency also potentially regulates some very, very important um, regulatory it adds some like some regulatory crust on all of this. And what it's really effectively gonna do is it's gonna say, hey, for these really big models for these, you know, for Chat GPT and and for Google's Bard, that you're gonna have to get regulatory approval or effectively a regulatory approval from the uh, from the White House. It's not, you know, it's not specifically that everything has to be, has to go through their, their approval, but you basically, you're going to have to, you know, tell them that what you're doing, right? You're going to have to, you're going to have to say, hey, we're, we're developing out this system. It looks like X, Y, and Z. And, you know, you have to give us information to the, uh, to the, to the White House. So it, it's setting things up for the future, which I think is why it's so important. It's like, this is the first step. If you want to regulate AI, this is the first step to do it. Well, and let me ask you, just so people understand, is, does the executive order say this is the way this stuff gets used in the government or does this have the potential or, or does it actually regulate it for everybody who might use it? So it's doing a little bit of both. It is, in fact, saying that this is how you probably should uh, use it within the government. So, And I think part of that's going to be good because we do need these services to create better government delivery, right? We have uh, an expensive government bureaucracy, and I think this is one of the ways to, you know, get better outcomes with fewer, you know, fewer resources. But then there's this other part, which is also saying to the agencies, to the, you know, to the, to the Federal Trade Commission and all of these other powerful agencies, hey, you should take a look at this and you should do as much as you're, as much as you're capable of doing uh, to regulate AI. So, you know, in a hundred, you know, in a hundred page, or sorry, in a hundred deliverables, there's a lot of different things that that this is well, effectively going to do, and and it, a lot of it could be very, very detrimental in the long term. I, I guess, Will, in my heart of hearts, I could hope that a really smart AI might say, "Hey, that Department of Education, you should eliminate the whole thing, and the Commerce Department, most of that." 
And, you know, I, I wish an AI could go to work, but I have a feeling that government is going to handle this new technology the way we're always hearing about government handling things where they say, yeah, we've had hacks of our uh, our computer databases. We've lost the entire list of, the you know, all the people who work for the federal government and all their personal info. They're never up to date when it comes to technology. So how are they going to approach something that really is at the cutting edge of technology? Are they going to embrace it? Or are they going to say, yeah, we really don't want to mess with this, and we'll be we'll be stuck with the same old, you know, uh, I guess, uh, uh, you know, some kind of bound-up government that can't seem to get anything straight? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, I don't think there's going to be – I don't think there's a singular kind of takeaway that we'll be able to see that really expresses what – each of the eight different agencies is going to react slightly differently depending on the things that they've been given. So I wish I could give a clear answer to that, but the, I think the, the the reality is that there's going to be changes, say, at the, the Veterans Administration, and there's going to be changes at the Department of Commerce, and there's going to be changes – at the Department of Education, and each one of those we're going to have to follow very closely. And I think that for people who care about those issues, you know, it's it's going to matter very specifically how those agencies react. And it's kind of uncertain right now exactly uh, ex exactly what the outcomes look like. I mean, for something this comprehensive, and talking to Will Reinhardt from the Center for Growth and Opportunity, is it something that should be handled uh, by putting it on a piece of paper and saying when Joe Biden says it, it's effectively law, or should this be done by the Congress? If we're going to regulate I, I, AI, yeah, yeah. If we're going to regulate it, I think Congress really should be the, the should be the driver of this. But Congress is stalled for a lot of different reasons, and I don't think that AI specifically is really going to, you know, I, I don't think AI is one of those issues where you can see it uh, kind of pass through the blockage. But at the same time, the White House probably shouldn't be doing very much more than what they're already doing, and they're already doing a lot. So before this executive order came out. Lots of different agencies were trying to figure out how to, you know, how to how to police um, bad nefarious actors. Um, anyway, so there was already a lot that was going on by the agencies, by the FTC, to go after you know people who were using AI for fraud and for 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 banks and all of that kind of stuff. That's where I think the government actually should be useful, right? It's the attorneys general going after the hacker groups that are trying to get people's information and taking, you know, taking their financial data and taking their information away and doing all those sorts of bad, nefarious things. But this goes so much further. And, and I worry that if the agencies really try to take the, uh, if they take the executive order to heart, then they're going to focus on all of these things that at the end of the day really don't matter. And what really matters is that consumers are protected, right? That we go after the bad actors that are, that are that are doing bad things well, and that we ensure that people can have access to these technologies but it occurs to me will if you've got bad actors who are going to use ai even use it in perverse ways to try to hack into us and then you tie the hands of yeah. the federal government and say but you can't use the the most cutting-edge ai against them i know who's likely to win that contest am i wrong no you're completely right and that's where where at least positively the the executive order suggests that maybe the agencies are going to be using these tools in the future. Yeah, but 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 the fe the federal government is going to be told this is how you're going to use them. This is you know we're going to put limits on it, and maybe you should even put. And the last thing I want to see is say limits on the private sector. 
and they're going to say you should compete with China and every other part of the world, but they're going to be using AI to beat the band, and we're going to tie your hands before you walk into that contest. That one doesn't seem like it's a winner for America. That's Will Reinhardt from the Center for Growth and Opportunity. Will, it's a pleasure to have you on. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you happen to be a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the list at 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. When it comes time to... from school and apologize for everything apologize for you oh jesus what happened to us this is the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show i want to give you an update on what we know about what is happening at the university of nevada las vegas unlv campus in las vegas there was a shooting incident that began a couple of hours ago uh, there are multiple shooting victims. Uh, we do not know their current status. Uh, we do know that the suspect, described by the L uh, Las Vegas PD as a uh, as one suspect, so we don't know whether there is more. There are more than one, or if there was just one. But that suspect has been found dead. And I will tell you this as well. I'll remind you of a significant fact that most of the legacy mainstream media will not tell you, and that is the UNLV campus is a mostly gun-free zone. Now, why do I tell you that? Because 94% of all mass shootings in America happen in gun-free zones because the bad guys, the killers, the murderers, the psychopaths, they don't care what the rules are. Only legal law-abiding citizens care what the rules are. So when you create a gun-free zone, and UNLV is a mostly gun-free zone because the latest we can find from the uh, Las Vegas PD is that while you can apply for permission to carry a gun with a concealed weapons permit on the campus, the campus usually only gets a couple of requests, but officially the rest of the campus, unless you have special leave from the campus police, is a gun-free zone. And I just remind you, 94% for all of the area in America, a very tiny amount is gun-free zones. Most of America, you can carry a gun where you choose to carry a gun and where you can legally and lawfully carry a gun. In more than half the states in America, more than half of the 50 or 58, if you're an Obama voter, uh, that you are allowed to carry a gun. And in more than half the states, you don't even need a permit. You don't need a piece of plastic in your pocket. You don't need a piece of paper. You just need to be somebody who is not legally disqualified from carrying a gun. That is known as constitutional carry. So in most of America, you can carry a gun legally and lawfully. The tiny numbers of places, places that have declared themselves to be gun-free, like the UNLV campus, like too many college campuses, those are the places that are the most dangerous places based on the numbers. Based on the number of shooting events, 94% of mass shootings happen in gun-free zones. Well, UNLV is a, and I have to say mostly gun-free zone, because you can get special permission to carry a concealed weapon on campus. Most of the students do not. The shooting began a couple of hours ago. We know that the shooter is dead. 
We know that other multiple victims have been shot. We'll bring you an update, and you'll likely get an update in the top of the hour news. Glad to be with you on the Radio Northwest Network, and always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And this segment of the show brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. I want to raise a question about what happened this week with the uh, airline pilot off-duty at the time who boarded an Alaska Airlines flight in Seattle on its way to San Francisco. It was somewhere near Portland when a man who is flying as a jump seat passenger in the cockpit, he was uh, an off-duty airline pilot in the jump seat of that plane, and uh, he suddenly went crazy, said, "I'm, I'm not in control of what I'm doing or words to that effect. He attempted to shut down both of the engines by, I think they call it, pulling the bottle. It means that you pull out a couple of handles that cut off the hydraulics, the electricity, and the fuel flow to both of the engines, and they can also fire a fire extinguisher. He didn't manage to fully, he didn't manage to pull those handles out all the way. He was stopped by the cockpit crew because otherwise... He would have cut off the fuel, the electricity, the hydraulic control, and might have even fired the fire extinguisher bottle, which is there just in case one of the engines catches fire. It would have put that plane in a great deal of danger. He was initially charged with 83 counts of attempted murder, and I think that charge actually fit what he had done. Joseph David Emerson charged with 83 counts of attempted murder. Well, they presented it to a Multnomah County grand jury this week, and the grand jury, like most of the things in Multnomah County, kind of a disappointment. They said, no, he's not guilty, or he's not. we're not going to charge him with attempted murder. We want to charge him with 83 counts of recklessly endangering another person, which is a far lesser crime, and that's only if he's convicted. He also faces one count of endangering an aircraft, which is a felony crime. So, you've got a situation where, once again, they've decided to severely undercharge in the case of a man who could have spent 20 or 30 years in prison for deliberately trying to take the lives of 83 people. That's what I believe that Joseph David Emerson did. He admitted to the police, or he told the police, that he had been taking magic mushrooms. He was off-duty, wasn't trying to fly, but he was flying in the cockpit of the aircraft and then apparently lost control of himself and decided to take these crazy actions. And now he's going to face far lesser punishment uh, for whatever reason. Today's Twitter poll, should people who sell illegal deadly drugs that end up killing their customers face a homicide charge? It's the case of Nasir Overton, 20 years old. He has been charged with a criminal complaint of possessing uh, fentanyl, except he was selling it as oxycodone pills. One of those pills ended up in the hands of a 15-year-old who then overdosed and died four days later after eating the counterfeit oxycodone pill Nasir Overton has now been charged in that criminal complaint with resulting in the death of that 15-year-old. I would say yes. You sell illegal deadly drugs and one of your customers dies, then you are guilty of that homicide. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Lars. This is The Lars.
Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live and now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I want to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. I always try to disclose if I have a dog in the fight, or in this case, a butt in the ashtray, and I don't. I don't smoke cigarettes, never have. I smoke a cigar now and then, so I guess you could blame me for that. But it looks like higher taxes on cigarettes, and the taxes on cigarettes are sky high around America. And depending on which state you're talking about, they are higher than others. And the end result of that has been what? More income for government? Well, to some extent, yes. But also a whole lot more cigarette smuggling. And I thought we'd bring on Adam Hoffer, who is director of excise tax policy at the Tax Foundation. Adam, welcome to the program. Hi, Lars. Thanks so much for having me on. So it, there is quite a difference. I'm glad to have you on. There is quite a difference in the taxes that are charged depending on what part of the United States you're in. Would you give us a little uh, overview of that and where the highest places are? Yeah, I, I don't think it'll surprise too many of your listeners to find out that the highest taxes in the country are in the upper northeast, New York, uh, Rhode Island, Connecticut. Uh, and then, of course, uh, over on the Pacific Coast, we have uh, California, Oregon and Washington, uh, whereas the middle of the country, uh, Missouri, Virginia, and, of course, your, your tobacco belt tend to have the lowest taxes on cigarettes. All right. And the result of that is high smuggling in the high-tax areas and low smuggling in the low-tax areas. Is it that simple? It, it, it really is. It, it's not that complicated of an idea, and I, I think it's one that should seem obvious to policymakers from the start, but it doesn't always appear that it is. Uh, higher tax rates make the products more expensive, more expensive than they necessarily need to be. If you can just dodge the taxes, you can make a lot of money. And so uh, really they're just dangling giant incentives out there for people who want to go get cigarettes in low-tax areas and then come sell them without paying the taxes in high-tax areas. And in fact, I, I can remember there was an old, I think one of the sequels to Beverly Hills Cops starts with a semi-truck full of smuggled cigarettes. So if, <laughs> if people think this is just a recent phenomena, it's not. But what stunned me was when I read your report from the Tax Foundation and it talked about the level of smuggling. Is it true that in some states in the United States, the cigarettes that are actually consumed, smoked by people, that in, in some states is as high as 50% of them are smuggled? That's right. Uh, look no further than uh, California, where uh, we see that, you know, roughly 50 percent of cigarettes consumed in the state are smuggled. And the number one state in the country is New York, uh, where we're seeing uh, roughly 55 percent of the cigarettes consumed in the state of New York are not purchased in the state of New York. Now, does that mean that when the state legislature says, we're going to raise the tax on cigarettes. I know they have a lot of different incentives they're trying to meet. Sometimes they're trying to get people not to smoke. So they're, they're setting up a revenue source of the state that is guaranteed to go down if they're successful. That may be part of it. Part of it may be just the usual government greed that they want to get their hands on more money. But does raising cigarette taxes usually produce more revenue 
or just more smuggling that goes around the taxes, and therefore the revenue stays the same even though the taxes are going up? Yeah, a good rule of thumb is that normally when you increase the tax rate on something like cigarettes, you will collect more revenue in the short run. Uh, it, increasing the tax rate doesn't do anything to uh, counteract the long-term trend of just fewer people smoking. So uh, they collect less and less money each year, but a, a one-time tax increase will increase the money they bring in for a little while. But at the same time, they're also doing a whole bunch of things that, they're not really hoping to accomplish with the policy, uh, chief among them being increasing the incentives for smuggling. And there are loads of people and organizations that are happy to fill that opportunity uh, and supply those untaxed cigarettes. I'm talking to Adam Hoffer, who's director of excise tax policy at the Tax Foundation. So let me ask you about this. So when people do this kind of activity, you'd say, well, it's illegal. Uh, you're you're helping people to avoid taxes but is there really much chance of getting caught? And I ask that only because if there's a high-reward activity that's illegal, but you have almost no chance of getting caught because cigarettes don't come with VIN numbers or, or the other things that might allow you to track them very well, is there really very much effective enforcement of the anti-smuggling laws? <laughs> uh, the short answer to that is no. Uh, there's very little enforcement. It's not that they don't try. It's just that, uh, cigarettes are relatively small. Uh, you can fill up a minivan full of them and drive across several states if you want. Uh, and then also if you look at just the, the sheer quantity of items that come into U.S. ports, uh, the chances of them catching a, a tiny fraction of a shipping container filled with cigarettes from China is just really low. The, the real, you know, problem that we're seeing here is that so few smuggling operations are, you know, able to be caught and tracked by law enforcement that, uh, there's huge opportunities here. We're talking billions of dollars to be made simply by skirting taxes. And the better organized the crime organization is, the more likely that they are to get away with it. And it's really the opposite thing that we're hoping to encourage with tax policy. So is there a way to tell from the numbers, Adam, whether or not most of this is done by giant organized rings? Or is it more of a mom and pop operation where... Mom and pop say, hey, let's fill up the minivan and drive up to New York and we'll make a couple of thousand dollars or a few thousand dollars by bringing in cigarettes that are not taxed. Yeah, it, it really is a mix of both. I think what we see is that uh, what we consider casual smuggling still dominates a lot of the market. And it's it's not necessarily people who are, are trying to run their own organization, but uh, if I happen to be if I happen to be a smoker and I know that I'm driving across state lines, I just have in the back of my head that I'm going to stop and buy the product wherever it's cheapest. We we do the same thing with all kinds of products, right? Yeah, because somebody says to you, "Oh, you're going down. To, you're driving down to Virginia." Or I don't. Virginia would be a, a relatively low state, but I, I, I suppose one of the Carolinas might be low as well. If you live in New York or or Philly or one of those places, and you say, "As long as you're going down there, buy buy me ten cartons of cigarettes and bring them back," and and it might be, even be things that are not done for a profit necessarily, but just because you're you're fulfilling the need of one of your friends. That's exactly what we see with a lot of the data, right? People stock up. Uh, when they're out of state, they have their friends do it for them. Um, it's really only been really the most recent uh, actions that we've seen taken, uh, notably in California, where we've seen uh, a large spike in uh, shipments coming in either through the ports or across the border. 
and of course, it, again, this won't be too surprising that uh, the California market is is among the most rife for uh, infiltrating with these, you know, either extremely high tax products that you can a- avoid the tax for, or uh, you know, in some case, California just just banned menthol cigarettes, so uh, they're not banned in Mexico. So it's not too hard to find uh, a source where you can get some if you really want them. And I don't know, does the federal government take a role? I've got to wrap up this segment in a moment, but if you drive to Mexico and buy menthol cigarettes, does the Border Patrol care when you come across with a trunk load? Uh, a, a trunk load, they might ask you some questions, but uh, a handful of cartons under a sleeping bag, I, I think uh, I'm not going to advise anyone to go do that, but <laughs> I think the chances of you being detained are, are very low. It seems like it. That's Adam Hoffer, Director of Tax Policy at the Tax Foundation. Adam, thanks very much. Back in a moment, you got the Lars Larson Show. with you all day every day podcasts at spotify apple soundcloud and live right now what a time to be alive here's lars welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you i've been talking about illegal alien issues for more than a quarter of a century i don't say that as a great thing i wish i could have stopped talking about it uh 20 plus years ago sadly we currently have a president who's decided to sponsor an invasion of america And I always wondered if somebody did that kind of thing, as Joe Biden has done, invited literally millions of people to cross illegally into America. I've wondered, but what is his secretary of Homeland Security expected to do? Well, we now know. We know that Alejandro Mayorkas will simply sit there in front of the U.S. Congress while they're asking him about how millions of people have managed to get across the border illegally and have been not just allowed into America, but welcomed into America, given thousands of dollars, signed up for all kinds of public benefits, uh, given a, a bus ticket or a plane ticket at the expense of the American taxpayer. Well, come to find out, Alejandro Mayorkas is a true believer. He, he actually thinks it's wrong for America to enforce its border. And in support of that point, I'm going to play a soundbite in a moment. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. And I might get some naysayers on this. So naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. If you want to remember it that way, 866-HEY-LARS or 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And don't forget to vote in our Twitter poll. Uh, We put up a brand-new question of the day every day on x or twitter at lars larson show and at lars but this was absolutely stunning here's alejandro mayorkas testifying in front of the united states congress and he explains that it's just wrong to actually enforce the border take a listen you know restart construction on the border wall increase the number of border patrol agents limit asylum narrow the president's parole powers why is that unpalatable to the administration 
I would say two things. One, we've presented um, uh, proposals uh, that address the situation, that provide real practical solutions, and also uh, do not do violence to our fundamental values. Do violence to our fundamental values. Now, let me tell you what you should see or hear in that soundbite. Number one, he says, well, we've presented solutions that address the situation. Do you know what he's talking about? He's saying, if only America would say, when you come to our border, we'll let you in and we'll simply grant you status to stay in America. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is there are about a million people every single year these days who want to come to America and they get to come to America. They do it through a green card system. And those are given out. A certain number are given, uh, the, uh, the ability to get a green card is given out to various people in various countries, right? And, uh, uh, and, and to some extent, we grant, grant a greater number to Mexico and a lesser number to all, almost all the other countries on Earth. You can emigrate from almost everywhere on this planet to the United States. And I would guess that if allowed, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people would like to come to America. So what Mayorkas is saying is, we need to just speed this up. We almost need an escalator right there at the border that just carries you into the country and immediately gives you status to stay in America, to work in America, to enjoy the rights and privileges and protections of the Constitution. We want to just give it away to anybody who shows up, except that all the way up to the point of Joe Biden beginning his presidency not quite three years ago, America had carefully or tried to carefully regulate immigration to this country. But Mayorkas believes that if you enforce that, that is doing violence to our fundamental values. Only if your values include saying, well, I guess what? If anybody wants to come here, they can come here. And nobody in America can decide that they don't want an unlimited flow of illegal aliens into the country with all the damage that can do. Let me go first on, uh, because I always put naysayers first. I want to put Eric up. Hey, Eric, welcome to the program. You know we love naysayers on this program. Welcome, and uh, tell me what we disagree with that makes you uh, about, that makes you a, a naysayer. Hey, Lars. Yeah, um, so uh, you know, thanks for having me on here. Uh, sure. So yesterday you had a phone call from a gentleman named Rob, I believe, uh, and it was regarding um, using correct terminology for trans. And when you responded, your, your response was saying that you felt that if you used the correct terminology, you would lose half your audience, that they wouldn't be able to I didn't, follow I didn't say that. Them. What I said was, I, he said you should just call these fake women instead of trans. And I said, I tend to use terms of art that are familiar to my audience because, and I didn't say anything about losing audience. We haven't seemed to do anything but yeah, gain audience for the last would, uh, 10 years. I, I recall you, I recall you said you would, uh, lose half of your audience because the topic was that he was actually saying you should use gender dysphoria. As opposed to calling them fake women. Well, by if by lose, if by lose, hold on, Eric. Eric, if by lose, if I begin to talk about nuclear fusion, and I know that most of my audience doesn't know the terminology, and it won't make any sense to them, I might lose them in the sense that they say, "I don't know what he's talking about." What I try to do with every subject is make it understandable to the vast majority of my my audience. Not maybe not all, but I'm not sure what your point is. What do we disagree about? Okay, so. Well, on that, you haven't so said that yet. You called in as an A, so I insist that you tell us what right we here. disagree about. This is my point right here. 
This is my point right here. Okay. If you think the vast majority of your audience cannot follow you along when you're using the right terms, then you think that you are superior in education and smarter than most of your audience. Never said that. I've never said that. If you're going to lose them, if well, you're going to lose them, Eric, Eric, I, you know, Eric, my producers and I use a lot of terminology. Oh, and Eric did took the coward's way out and simply left. Um my in my business in radio, there are a lot of specialized terms that mean something to people who work in that industry. If you work as a mechanic or if you work in construction, there are terms that you use for things that the rest of us may or may not understand. And all I'm suggesting is not a superiority, but if I use unfamiliar terms to describe something, in most cases, people are going to say, I have no idea what he's talking about. On that note, let's go to Lisa. Hey, Lisa, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm calling about the um, transgender issue and um, biological males participating in girls' sports. Yep. Um, you know, they say that, well, you should let everybody participate and that, you know, they are quote, females, um, but one of the things that, well, I mean, they, they say that because psychologically they're just saying, Crazy I don't want to be a male or a that, female. Lisa. Crazy people say yeah. that. Yeah. I know. But the thing is, I, I was thinking, you know, why, if they say, well, they're, they're going through all this transition, the, the hormones, the sex changes, I mean, but that that is not acknowledging that at birth that boy was, um, genetically programmed to have longer bones, more muscle mass, yep. all that kind of stuff. And his body yep. does things differently. So if they're saying it's, he's now a woman, then, I mean, really, the logic would be, well, you need to change all the way back to a woman. So have your bones changed, your muscles changed, you know, like take muscles out because they're, or, or something, you know, however many percent of your body. And the other problem is, Lisa, an awful lot of people who call themselves trans and call themselves women have not gone through the hormone changes. They just identify as women, and then they get to compete against real women and beat them in competition, and that's just wrong. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Before you are weeding out the right from the wrong, this is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls, and we'll do that in just a moment. But I want to talk to our friend Michael Bernstam. He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford with an expertise in international economics, the former Soviet Union, and Russian politics. Professor, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with your audience. I, I love to have you on the show to, to bring us up to date on, on where we stand now in terms of the Ukraine war and the news today that broke that federal prosecutors have now charged four Russian soldiers with war crimes for allegedly abducting and torturing an American citizen in Ukraine shortly after the Russian invasion. Is there a way of, of, of capitalizing where do we stand now and especially with what now sounds like Congress's extreme reluctance to send more tens of billions of dollars into the war? 
Uh, it is a package, uh, the $61 billion uh, from the United States, uh, which the Congress wants to uh, conduct together with securing the border, and uh, it's an important issue too, so it is a bargaining. It's not about the substance of the issue. Uh, very few object to the, uh, uh, to the uh, military and financial aid to Ukraine, but uh, the Congress wants to use this opportunity to solve the problems across the border, including the border security. So it's a political issue of how to handle it, not the substance of the issue. And well, another thing is sorry. that... Yeah, okay, go No, ahead. no, go ahead, Professor. The other issue? Oh, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, meanwhile uh, the president of Ukraine couldn't uh, appear uh, for whatever reason uh, to argue this case, but he held a very important uh, online conversation, telephone or uh, Zoom, I don't know, uh, with all the leaders of the G7, and they agreed on uh, joint strategy. So uh, it's a political process. Would you, but, but on top of the political process, you said there's very little disagreement with sending more money to Ukraine. I guess I'd push back on that notion a bit, Professor, because I hear more and more people saying, look, how much are we going to send? Where, what, where we get, when do we finally get to a resolution of this issue? And we don't get much that's concrete that comes from either the White House or the Congress. It's just we need to send more money. And then when they couple it up and say, we're going to couple that with a vote that's on Ukraine, that's on the border, and that's on Israel, every right. time they combine different issues together that way, it makes me suspect that they think that on their own, those issues would not win a vote. Uh, no, I, I think on the contrary, on the contrary, these issues uh, are combined in order for uh, meet the priorities that for every member of Congress they have their own constituency, for every senator they have their states, there are priorities, and for some, for all our thousand states, Arizona, Texas, and others, uh, California, where I am, the, prior, uh, the priority is border security, and more generally, for all Western countries, the issue of immigration, because it is very hard, to be honest, very hard to maintain the welfare state, and very hard to maintain the labor market when the issue of immigration are not resolved. So this is an attempt to solve all the issues together. Now, do you, uh, militarily, do you see much in the way of any kind of progress from one side or the other? Because it seems as though on neither side seems to be winning uh, this, this conflict. It's just grinding on. Is my impression wrong? Uh, I'm not a military expert, but I think your impression is right. You mentioned Israel, you mentioned Ukraine. Look, there are only three scenarios possible in each of them. One is that no one surrenders, neither side surrenders, neither Hamas nor Israel surrender, neither Russia nor Ukraine surrender, and it, will, it may go for a long time, lots of people will get killed. The other possibility is one side, one side surrenders. If one side surrenders, then, uh, then it is over. Neither side wants to surrender, that's, that's the problem. But can you ask either side or can you enforce on either side or how do you make one side surrender? If neither side surrenders, the war will last for, for as long as one side can prevail militarily. Uh, Israel may be able to prevail militarily in the Middle East, but neither Russia nor Ukraine seem to be able to prevail militarily in their uh, war. Well, because at least with Hamas and Israel, is there any doubt that Israel has the military capability to go in and kill every member of Hamas if they choose to do it? 
No, that's that, that, that's the issue. That uh, if one side wins and the other side loses, that's the end of the war. That's how wars end. One right. side wins, the other side loses, and Israel can do it. In in the Russian-Ukrainian war, paradoxically, neither side can do it. Although it looked like Russia is much stronger, it used to be said that they have the second largest or the second <laughs> most powerful <laughs> army in the world, and now it is degraded. They're fighting for what for villages which no one lives there anymore the villages where they have uh, uh, a few houses there and all, all destroyed and they're fighting there and and they're not making much progress on either side i was just making the Me? point that israel could go in and right now uh the daily mail has a story that says they're planning to flood the 300 miles of tunnels that uh, hamas has been using as its base of operations under gaza and if they flood it with seawater apparently it fills up and Hamas would be forever denied its use of those facilities that they've used for a long time to wage a war on Israel. It, it, and it would force all the rats to the top when you flood the sewer. By the way, uh, you mentioned uh, 300 miles of uh, tunnels there. Uh, for, uh, for a comparison, the New York subway has a bit, just a little bit more than 300 miles. So it's <laughs> exactly. huge. Can you think of this construction? The Paris subway has 360 miles, and it was built for 100 years. New yep. York subway was built for decades. How, how could Hamas, a small organization ostensibly, with a few... Uh, a billion dollars from Iran could build 300 miles of tunnels, but they managed it. Well, and they managed it, I think, with an awful lot of aid from Israel and the United States, where the Gazans would say, oh, you have to help us out. We need sewers. We need water. We need facilities. We need to build, you know, apartment buildings uh, to house all our people. So the Western countries give the money or give the materials, and they end up being used to build terrorist facilities. The Western countries give the money through the organization, the unique organization, UNRWA, United Nations UNRWA. Agency yep. for the Relief, UNRWA, uh, which is only for the Palestinian refugees. No other refugees in the world. We have millions of refugees in Africa. Lots of people get slaughtered. And we have this agency which sends billions of dollars of Western money for the welfare state for, to the country where... Uh, 50% just don't work or work for Hamas and build the tunnels. And meanwhile, the leaders of Hamas are sitting where? Qatar or Qatar? Uh, and they're worth billions of dollars? Yes, Qatar and in Syria and uh, in Lebanon. And uh, so their children go to Western universities, of course. So they get to run a remote control war from the comfort and luxury of Qatar and they're worth billions of dollars, and they're directing a war that ends up being funded by the United States. Uh, by the United States and Western, Western Europe and the same G7, which, uh, were, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's the world we're living in, yes. We're subsidizing, we're subsidizing for almost 80 years. We're subsidizing uh, this uh, organization.
As far as I'm concerned, then, Professor, turn on the pumps, flood the tunnels, fix the problem, force the rats to the surface, and do what we do with rats, which is exterminate them. And if they say, well, the Palestinian people, well, the Palestinian people, maybe we should look at it this way, free them from Hamas. And if they still have the attitude that says, no, we want to kill our next-door neighbors, then treat them just like Hamas, as far as I'm concerned. That's Professor Michael Bernstein, research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Professor, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You probably... On demand, wherever and whenever you want it. Get the podcasts all day, every day at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday. This segment of the show brought to you by the home power generating folks at ProTech Power. Make sure your loved ones are safe when the power goes out, and it seems more likely to than it ever has before. 541-ONA-GEN. That's 541-ONA-GEN. Glad to have you with me on a Wednesday. Let me tell you what the Twitter poll is as well. Should people who sell illegal deadly drugs that end up killing one of their customers face homicide charges? I would answer that one yes. There's a man in Portland, Nasir Overton, 20 years old, selling, uh, allegedly selling uh, fake Oxycontin pills as... Uh, as, but they have fentanyl in them. A 15-year-old boy uh, who who ended up taking one of those pills ended up overdosing and then dying four days later. He is now charged in connection to that teen's death. Let me go to Paul in Federal Way, listening on KVI and the Radio Northwest Network. Hey, Paul, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Well, hi, uh, Lars. Just regarding the uh, transgender and dysphoria issue, just a couple thoughts. One. You know, where biological males want to compete with biological females, you know, um, one of uh, the restrictions to that might be, and this might sound extreme, but before they're allowed to even be considered for that, make them go the full route. If you want to be a woman, then get rid of your junk. Well, and, and that's a possibility, but, Paul, you understand that if you go to the institutions that are doing this, say, the colleges or the athletic uh, you know, uh, accreditation organizations, and you say, make them go all the way, then they can compete. They're going to say, no, we have to allow anybody who identifies as female. And that's the key part, is that as long as you're willing to say, as soon as a guy says, I identify as female, if you start dividing it up saying, well, you haven't done three years of hormone treatment, you haven't gone in for the surgery, you haven't gone in for the not just removing things but reconstructing things, the, the, the trans crowd, so-called, is not going to go for that. They're just going to say, no, no, we want, we want all trans to be included. And I don't know how you get past that. Go, because They might not go for that, but what about the rest of the world that's more normal? Well, I, look, the rest of the know, normal world is with you, Paul, it. but the, the, the people who write the rules are not. The people who wrote well, this, the rules, 
and worked us into this corner are the ones you have to convince. Now, there are a couple of accreditation agencies. I think there's an international swimming one that said, no, we're not going to let biological males uh, compete as fake females against against real females. Uh, but there are very few of those. And you got Riley Gaines, uh, who's an athlete, who's who's really done a lot of work to say to push back on this stuff. But you notice she's not gathering. She's got plenty of public support that I can read. But is she getting support in state legislatures and in the Congress? And if the answer is no, then then she's going to lose. I mean, as right as her as righteous as her cause might be, she's going to lose because until you get the representatives of the people, which is why if people say, Lars, you don't do any good, you just talk about things. Well, there, there's some truth to that. But if you talk about things and you get people, I've been begging, Paul, for about five years now. I've said, when are the moms and dads and grandmas and granddads going to stand up and say, you're not putting my daughter, you're not putting my granddaughter into that situation where she has to compete against a fake female who's actually a biological male? And until you stand up and start shouting about it, I know there are people who will tell you, you can never change the mind of Congress. I've seen it happen too many times. When there is enough public opposition to something, like when George W. Bush sat there at a press conference in 2001 and said about he was going to grant amnesty. And he knew he had the Democrats on his side. And he was only arguably a Republican. And he said, I'll see you at the signing ceremony. He was planning to sign that amnesty. And then the White House switchboard virtually melted down because phone calls, emails, everything else came in from people saying, don't you dare. And it didn't happen. So it can happen when you see enough public opposition. But that's what you need. You need people to be very vocal. And I'm afraid, Paul, that a lot of people are afraid to speak up. I started the show today talking about a doctor a pediatrician who treats exclusively children who I believe has been fired from her job, whatever fancy terminology you want to use, but she's been fired because she wouldn't take part in all this transgender nonsense. And so the medical establishment she worked for said, now nah, then you're going to have to go. And she can't talk about it because of an NDA. The, the hospital can't talk about it or won't talk about it. And do you think her colleagues are standing up to support her, Paul? Uh, I'm sure they're not. and uh, They're not, because they'll get cashiered yeah. as well. So so what well, do you do maybe, in that case? Maybe the best response is to find a way to stop paying taxes that are used for those things that most of us are all and, against. And but good luck with that, you know, because, because what you have to, the, the way to do that is convince your state lawmakers to say we're not signing, we're not passing a budget that includes money for this kind of fake female, fake male stuff. I appreciate the call. Let's go to Weldon. Weldon, we're about a minute from the break, so get right to it. Yes, I would suggest you change your terminology from fake to artificial. It's very Artificial, accurate. though, they are actually. Artificial. artificial. Okay, and how is that better? They are, they are, they are man-made. They yeah. don't get there naturally. We make them. They're artificial male, artificial female. And the short version, you call them Arby's. Okay, but and that's it's cute. But Weldon, answer this question: yeah. Can any doctor, okay. given unlimited resources, make a woman? No. Okay, so they they're not even artificial because you, can, if you can't make a woman, even given unlimited resources, they can't even be artificial. They are fakes. The Lars Larson.